Well, I want to encourage you to turn this morning to the book of 1 John chapter 2. 1 John chapter 2, and I'll be reading verses 15 through 17. 1 John chapter 2, verses 15 through 17. <clears throat> Do not love the world, nor the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh... And the lust of the eyes and the boastful pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. The world is passing away, and also its lust, but the one who does the will of God lives forever. And shall we pray? Lord, thank you so much for this day, and thank you for each one that is here. We thank you for the Lord's Day and the first day of the week where we can gather together and fellowship with one another and, and, and sing to thee and pray to thee and spend time in your holy revelation, your pure word. We, these moments I would pray again and again for your Holy Spirit to help me to bring forth your pure holy word in a way that is honoring to thee and also in a way that is um, instructive to our minds and, and to our hearts, in a way that uh, informs our thinking about how to live for thy glory in this transitory life that we have here. So I, I pray that it would be uh, instructive and helpful and edifying, and we just commit uh, this time to you and and pray for your continued blessing upon us this morning and throughout this day. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this time of year, my uh, heart is often drawn to a theme that is not in the flow of whatever we've been studying. And um, that was the case uh, this time instead of Hebrews. Um, and I, I think it's because a natural tendency, at least when one year ends and another one begins, to take an inventory on the, on the past year and to maybe evaluate areas uh, where once one wants to change or maybe improve. And uh, some people make resolutions during this time of the year. It seems like a lot of time it's resolutions related to diet or exercise. And you go to Costco and they have the exercise equipment all out there this time of year. But um, I, I wanted to take, a time, take time to, or take advantage of the, the time of transition that I think naturally <clears throat> leads to more reflection. So in light of that, I want to draw your attention to a specific theme, which you might have guessed from the verses that I read. Um, it, it is a theme that's cast in a negative light, however. It has to do with uh, your and my relationship to the world. And verse 15 begins by saying, depending on which version, version that you have, um, not loving the world, do not love the world, neither the things that are in the world. Now, if we were to ask um, how is this a relevant consideration? How does this really apply to me? And at least one answer that I would give, um, it's part of a trio of enemies that we all have to contend with every single day in all places at all time, the world, the flesh, and the devil. Uh, the flesh in the sense of, we'll talk more about this, but the flesh in the sense of that which is... Um, susceptible to the incessant temptations of the world. And then the enemy of our souls is presented as the God of this world. So its relevance is seen in the fact, and here especially the temptation to love the world, the relevance is seen in the fact that it's something that we have to contend with, all Christians have to contend with at all places, at all times. Um, 
And so we have other texts like, be not conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. That is, don't allow your, your, your thinking to be molded by the, the maxims and the outlooks of this world. And also, um, it's not easy. It's not an easy thing not to love the world because it requires constant vigilance. Uh, we, you've heard of the maxim that we are to be in the world, but not of the world. Pretty easy to say, but that's, that's a great challenge. Um, because we're constantly barraged by an outlook that um, is antithetical to what we believe and where our hearts are at. Uh, we're constantly barraged with an outlook of, with, uh, by a system whose goals are opposed to the being of God. And uh, its relevance is seen also in the fact that there resides an ongoing vulnerability to the allurements of the world. A, a striking verse that was read in your hearing this morning uh, in this regard and I think it's in the, in the text, in the, in the Bible, for the good of our souls. In 2 Timothy 4, 9, Paul says, Make every effort to come to me soon, for Demas, having loved this present world, has forsaken me and gone to Thessalonica. Um, and what makes this such a sobering text is, is Demas not only was a professing Christian, but he's presented as a, one of Paul's fellow workers. In Colossians 4.14, Paul wrote, Luke, the beloved physician, sends you his greeting, and also Demas. However, in Philemon chapter 1, verse 24, he says, Demas and Luke, my fellow workers. But, but three years later, Paul wrote 2 Timothy, and such was not the case. And Paul wrote, I, I think probably regretfully, Demas has forsaken me. He's abandoned me. He is gone. And the reason he gives for the defection, the reason that he was with us now, but he's no longer with us, is having loved this present world. That's what made the difference. And what makes this, I think, especially tragic is he had such close proximity with one of the more notable Christians in the history of the world. And I would presume, and this is a little speculation on my part, that when he made this movement and, and moved, moved away from his walk with the Lord, that um, he would have been kind of hard to reason with um, because he'd heard it all. I mean, he understood all the dynamics of the gospel. He understood about heaven and hell. He was with the Apostle Paul, but he got to a point where it just didn't matter anymore. But what did matter was this present world. So in light of that, especially as you're reading through 1 John, you come to verse 15, and especially the first part of verse 15, it's really an attention-getting verse. It's sort of like a stop sign. You, have you seen the stop signs, which also have lights all the way around the perimeter? So you, they really show up. I like those because they really show up, and I, I can see it. Well, this text really gets our attention. Do not love the world, neither the things that are in the world. Now, it is important to notice in the flow of thought here um, is clearly delineated what we are in Christ. So we have the resources, that's in verses 12 through 14, we have the resources uh, to draw from to put this command into practice or to obey this command. Stephen Smalley, who's wrote and written very helpfully on uh, 1 John, writes, Believers have experienced the knowledge of God and his forgiveness in Christ, and they have been given the spiritual strength to conquer the evil one. So that this command is given in light of the, the spiritual strength to put it into practice. So this morning, I, I guess you could think of it similar to last week, kind of a meditation, but today it would be a, a New Year's Eve meditation about our relationship to the world and especially the necessity of not loving the world. So we'll consider the command and then two motivations to obey the command and then we'll conclude with some counsels two or three counsels but first of all I would have you notice I'm calling it a compelling command uh, do not love the world um, 
nor the things of the world. In Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 1, it brings out that living in accordance with the world's values, that's characteristic of an unconverted lifestyle. Paul wrote, you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you formerly walked according, he says, to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. So walking according to the course of the world was consistent with being dead in trespasses and sins. In this sense, James writes in verse 27 of chapter 1 how we should respond to this. He says, pure religion and undefiled before God and the Father is this, to visit the fatherless and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained or unspotted from the world. Romans 12, 2, Paul says, be not conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. In our text, do not love the world. So under this first heading, I want to develop our thinking by means of, of three points of clarification a little bit of definition that I hope is not too tedious, but first of all, as to the import of the term love, it's to have a great affection or care for or loyalty towards the lexicon that I employ of love of things or a striving after them. It's used positively in Hebrews chapter 1 and verse 9. You have loved righteousness and hated lawlessness. Ephesians 5.25, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. And, and Jesus said in the Gospel of John, if you love me, keep my commandments. And in Mark chapter 12 and verse 30, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength. And so it's an affection word, but it's also used negatively. Um, in 2 Peter 2.15, in reference to Balaam, he loved the wages of righteousness, or Demas, who we just read about, or John 3.19, men love darkness rather than light, um, and negatively in this text as well. Now secondly, then as to the meaning of the term world, and that's one of those terms that uh, it's used over 180 times, and so great care has to be taken about the context within which it occurs. So um, it could be the world is the sum total of everything here and now, or the, the orderly universe. John 17, 5, Now glorify thou me together with thyself, Father, with the glory which I had with thee before the world was. It can refer to the sum total of all beings above the level of animals. Um, it can refer to the world as the earth, the planet upon which we live. Mark 16, 15, he said to them, go into all the world and preach the gospel to all creation. Or the world as the habitation of mankind. Uh, 1 Corinthians 5, 10, I did not at all mean with the immoral people of this world. It can refer to the earth in contrast to heaven, John 6, 14. When therefore the people saw the sign which he had performed, they said, this is of a truth, the prophet who has come into the world. Uh, it can refer to the world as mankind, which is similar to the point that I just made. But Romans 3.19, now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, and that every mouth may be closed, and that all the world may become accountable to God. Well, And then in, in this text, and in many others, let me just offer some definitions. Um, it's, it's the world system, mankind in organized rebellion against God. Mankind in organized rebellion against God. The people constituting the world whose values belong beliefs and morals are in distinction and rebellion to God. The world and everything that belongs to it appears as that which is at enmity with God, that is, lost in sin, wholly at odds with anything divine, ruined and depraved. Or human society, temporarily controlled by the power of evil, organized in opposition to God. This is a good short 
concise definition. Human society, temporarily controlled by the power of evil, organized in opposition to God. So it's, a, it's especially a disposition of mind and heart. It's apart from God. It's, it's not knowing God. John 17, 25, Jesus prayed, O righteous Father, although the world has not known thee. It's active rebellion um, and enmity and opposition against God. Uh, the world in this sense is presented as being under the power of the evil one. In 1 John 5.19, we know that we are of God, and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. And this is the reason why uh, people who worship God and love God and love Christ and, and, try, and, and try to live for him are hated by the world. Jesus said in John 17.14, I have given them thy word, and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. So what drives and motivates the, the believer is antithetical to this world system that is um, set against God and against his character and against his purposes. Um, as such, they are excluded from our Lord's intercessory prayer. Jesus said, I ask on their behalf. I do not ask on behalf of the world, but of those whom thou hast given me, for they are thine. And it's the world in this sense that Paul had in mind in Galatians 6.14, where he said, God forbid that I should glory save in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom the world is crucified to me and I unto the world. So what, the, what Christians are, are not to love and embrace, it's, it's this mindset or disposition and outlook that operates apart from God. It does not know God. It doesn't love God. It has no desire to please him and glorify him. It's opposed to him. It rejects him. It's in rebellion against him and is in fact under the sway of the enemy of our souls. Well then a third point of clarification under this first heading, this might arise at least in some people's minds, um, our text begins by saying do not love the world. How does this relate to John 3.16? It says God so loved the world. That sounds like they're in conflict to one another. But what we need to realize is the term world has different shades of meaning. And in John 3.16, it's the world viewed as, as people in general that must be loved. In our text, it's the world views, viewed as a, an evil system organized under the dominion of, of Satan. And the term love also um, is used differently. In John 3.16, as one put it, it's the holy love of redemption. The holy love of redemption, similar to the text we read in Sunday school, Paul conveying his concern for lost souls in Romans 9, I'm telling the truth in Christ, I'm not lying, my conscience bearing me witness in the Holy Spirit. I have great sorrow and unceasing grief in my heart, for I could wish that I myself were accursed, separated from Christ for the sake of my brethren, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. That, that's the holy love of redemption. And you might remember when our Lord was witnessing to the, to the rich young ruler. It says he felt a love for him. That is, I, I take that as a concern for his soul. Um, or as one put it, in our text, it's not the holy love of redemption, but the selfish love of participation. So in the first one, the, the aim or the goal is to save the sinner's person. Secondly, it's to share in his sin. So in the first place, we have this compelling command not to love the world. In the second place, a first motivation not to love the world. And I'm calling this a compelling motivation. This is why we should not love the world. It's because love for God 
and love for the world are mutually exclusive expressions of the heart. Love for God and love for the world are mutually exclusive expressions of the heart and the soul. The Bible says here, if anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. So if this is true, if one loves the world, something else is also true according to the text. The love of the Father is not in them. This is another very powerful assertion. It's a categorical affirmation. If one is true, the other cannot be true. If one loves the world, then something else must be true. The love of the Father is not in him. So the logic of this, I think, is very persuasive. If the character of the world as a system of thought and disposition is that it, which does not know God and rejects him and opposes him, it would require us to believe that one who loves it and embraces it and traffics in it and lives in accordance with it does not have the love of God in them, if that's the correct understanding of the world. In addition to that, we have James chapter 4 and verse 4, which says, Friendship with the world is... Hostility to God. Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. But what John does here is he presses the point further by articulating what things the world is made up of, so to speak. He gives three categories of thought that further clarifies what the world is. So he proceeds to expound the essential constituents of the world. Robert Candlish, an older commentator, wrote, The things of the world viewed separately and in detail, may have attractions for me still, and they do. The things that are in the world which may attract love as distinct object of desire are too many to be enumerated, but they may be classified, if not according to their own properties or qualities at any rate, according to the inward dispositions to which they appeal. The apostle thus classifies them under three heads. All that is in the world is distributed into the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. Those are the dispositions to which they appeal. So if we simply take them in order under this heading, number one, the lust of the flesh. Uh, Stephen Smalley in his work wrote, the first example of worldliness is a general one. The following two instances are to be regarded as further definitions of what is described as sinful desire, literally the desires of the flesh. The, the term uh, lust can mean desire or longing. It's used at times in a good sense. Philippians 1.23, Paul says, I am hard-pressed both from both directions, directions, having a desire to depart, to be with Christ. In Luke 22.15, Jesus says, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. In a bad sense, it's a desire for something that is forbidden. First um, Timothy 6.9, those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a snare and many foolish and harmful desires which plunge men into ruin and destruction. Colossians 3.5, therefore put to death your members which are on the earth, fornication, uncleanness, passion, evil, desire. It's translated lust in Romans 1.24, therefore God gave them over to the lust of their hearts to impurity that their bodies might be dishonored among them. And 2 Timothy 2.22, flee youthful lust and pursue righteousness, faith, love and peace. It, it can relate to an excessive or an inordinate desire for that which is legitimate. Uh, money is not evil in and of itself. You have to have money in order to live. But Paul says the, the love of money is, is a root of all kinds of evil. Well, then the, the term flesh also can have different senses. It can refer to that which covers the body or the body itself or uh, human or earthly descent or physical limitations um, but, but here the idea is the flesh is the willing instrument of sin. 
and is subject to sin to such a degree that wherever flesh is, all forms of sin likewise are present. Just some other explanations. The flesh describes the desire of our fallen and sinful human nature. The complete phrase, therefore, refers to fallen human nature in general to a disposition of hostility toward God and not simply to particular bodily lust. Flesh designates the outlook orientated towards the self, that which pursues its own ends and self-sufficient independence of God's. It's the whole nature of sinful man which is comprehended in this phrase, and not merely his bodily sensual desire. Any and every desire of man in his rebellion against God is what is meant. So I, I think its character is seen a little bit, or it's helped when we consider what it leads to in Galatians chapter 5. It says the deeds of the flesh or the manifestations of the flesh, which are evident, would be immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmities, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, disputes, dissensions, factions, envying, drunkenness, carousing, and things like these of which I forewarn you, just as I have forewarned you, that those who practice such things shall not inherit the kingdom of God." In Romans 8, it is presented as a, a categorical description of an unsaved person. In Romans 8, 6, the mind set on the flesh is death, but the mind set on the spirit is life and peace, because the mind set on the flesh is hostile toward God, for it does not subject itself to the law of God. It's not even able to do so. And those who are in the flesh cannot please God. So it's a categorical description of the unsaved condition. As opposed to having the spirit and being led by the spirit. Then the lust of the eyes um, is a sinful craving for what is seen. Every variety of gratification of which sight is the instrument. Temptations which assault us not from within but from without through the eyes. Uh, those sinful cravings which are activated by what people see and lead to covetousness. This is a tendency, there's a tendency to be captivated by the outward show of things without inquiring into their real value. Two classic examples of this, and others may come to your mind. One is Eve um, in the Garden of Eden. We read, when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was desirable to make one wise, she took from its fruit and ate. She gave also to her husband with her, and he ate. And then in, in the book of Joshua, with respect to Achan, chapter 7 and verse 20, Achan answered Joshua and said, Truly I have sinned against the Lord, the God of Israel. And this is what I did. I, I saw among the spoil a beautiful mantle from Shinar, 200 shekels of silver, and a bar of gold, 50 shekels in weight. And then I coveted them, and I took them. And behold, they are concealed in the earth inside my tent with the silver underneath it. I saw, then I coveted them, then I took them." Um, so it's sinful cravings that are especially activated by what is seen. And then the pride of life is self, self-exalting or self-absorbed conceit of one's, of one's own superiority, especially one that believes all of his, his achievement are of their own doing. If you want to read about this, um, Daniel chapter 4, Nebuchadnezzar is a good example of one who is just puffed up with all of his accomplishments. It especially relates to a false view of one's own value, especially based on possessions. The, the term life here, pride of life, um, is translated world's goods in verse 17 of chapter 3. Whoever has the world's goods. And Paul warned against this in 1 Timothy 6, 17. He said, uh, instruct those who are rich in this present world not to be conceited, 
or to fix their hope on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly supplies us with all things to enjoy. That, that suggests that the more stuff a person has, there is a tendency to begin to think I'm something and, and I'm deriving my value because all of, my, of all of my possessions. But it can apply to many different areas of life, to achievements, to wealth, to status in society. One author wrote, the pride of life, therefore, is an arrogance of vainglory relating to one's external circumstances, whether in wealth, rank, or dress, pretentious ostentation, the desire to shine or outshine others in luxurious living. One great help in overcoming um, this, this, ten, this particular tendency, I, I think, is to consider um, election or predestination, certain aspects of the gospel, um, the fact that by nature we are sinners, by nature... We're the object of God's wrath. We're, we're styled children of disobedience. The reason we are uh, in Christ is completely outside of ourselves. It's not based on our works at all. It's not based on our goodness at all. The true biblical gospel, especially things like total depravity and unconditional election, have the tendency to humble the pride of man. So these various aspects of the gospel humble us under the hand of God. So we have, number one, a compelling command, love not the world, and I think a compelling motive not to love the world. Love for God and love for the world are mutually exclusive activities of the heart. Well, then thirdly, compelling, compelling, compelling motive number two, um, to obey this particular command is to consider the transitory character of this world and all who are in it. Consider the transitory character of the world and all who are in it. Verse 17 says, the world is passing away and the lust thereof. So the person who lives um, in the world or for the world, I should say, that system of, of, of values and maxim, maxims that exist apart from God, opposed to God, they are passing away and they are doomed to destruction. As one put it, men with a lust for the world will pass away with it. Uh, Colin Cruz, in his work, wrote the author depicts the world's passing as an ongoing process. Already in chapter 2 and verse 8, he has spoken in a similar vein about the darkness passing away because of the true light of Jesus Christ is already shining. And that provides the clue to the meaning here. Because of all that has been set in motion by God through the coming of Jesus Christ, the world is passing away and its days are numbered. All that is antithetical to God and his grace is passing away. It is doomed. There is no future in worldliness. And I thought Calvin's remarks were, were helpful here. He says... As there is nothing in the world but what is fading, and as it were for a moment, he hence concludes that they who seek their happiness from it make a wretched and miserable provision, provision for themselves, especially when God, God calls us to the ineffable glory of eternal life, as though he had said the true happiness which God offers to his children is eternal. It is then a shameful thing for us to be entangled with the world, which with all its benefits will soon vanish away. I take lust here as signifying what is desired or coveted or what captivates the desires of men. The meaning is that what is most precious in the world and deemed especially desirable is nothing but a shadowy phantom. But the one who does the will of God abides forever. That is, the one whose life is marked by obedience to this command indicates that he or she has believed on the person of Christ and possesses eternal life. So we have this weighty command, followed by two, I think, very compelling motivations. And now I want to close by two or three final words of, of counsel that would be uh, help in, in applying it. Uh, number one is, is this. We see here the priority 
of the, the affections in the living of the Christian life, one of the things that this brings to the front burner of our thinking is the priority of the affections in the living of the Christian life. That is, the direction and the object of our affections are always to be monitored. Love is an affection word. We must always be aware of a, of a diminished delight in spiritual things and be on guard against any pursuit or interest that encroaches upon God or the Father and God the Son being the chief object of our affections. Deuteronomy 6.4 says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. So we must be aware that the enjoyment of worldly possessions or pursuits do not weaken or moderate the supreme joy which is found in the person of Christ. 1 Peter 1.8, Though you have not seen him, you love him, and though you do not see him now but believe in him, you rejoice with joy unspeakable and full of glory. Jonathan Edwards wrote about this, Their joy was full of glory. Although the joy was unspeakable, and no words were sufficient to describe it, yet something might be said of it, and no words more fit to represent its excellency than these. It was full of glory, or in the original, glorified joy. Number two, we must constantly be on guard that our interest in the material and the temporal doesn't supplant the fundamental interest in the spiritual and the eternal. Let me just read to you here from Luke chapter 12. Someone in the crowd said to him, Teacher, Tell my brother to divide the family inheritance with me. But he said to him, Man, who appointed me as a judge or arbiter over you? He said to them, Beware and be on your guard against every form of greed. For not even when a man has an abundance does his life consist in his possessions. He told them a parable saying, The land of a certain rich man was very productive. And he began reasoning to himself saying, What shall I do since I have no place to store my crops? Then he said, this is what I'll do. I'll tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I'll store all my grain and my goods. And I'll say to my soul, soul, you have many goods laid up for many years to come. Take your ease, eat, drink, and be merry. God said to him, you fool, this very night your soul is required of you. And now who will own what you have prepared? So is the man who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. And then thirdly, we need to realize that the source of true happiness is not found in worldly, temporal things, but in God alone. The source of true happiness, it's not found in the stuff of this world, but it is found in the being of God. God has created us and given us affections for the purpose of, of, their, of their being focused on him or terminating on his being. Ezekiel Hopkins, in a work entitled The Vanity of the World, wrote, Our great expectation is happiness. And our great folly is that we think to obtain it by the enjoyments of this world. This makes men pursue pleasure, hoard up riches, court honors and preferments, because they look with an overweening conceit on these things, as such as make them truly happy. Whereas to seek for happiness among these worldly things is but to seek the living among the dead. It is but to search for happiness among those things which are in their very root and occasion, the occasion of all of our misery. They are all of them leaky and bro broken cisterns and cannot hold this living water. So the counsel here, the meditation here is love not the world, neither the things that are in the world on the one hand, but rather lay up treasures for yourself in heaven where moth and rust is not corrupt and where thieves do not break through and steal. And shall we pray? Father, I think, I pray that you would uh, take what we have considered this morning and apply it to our hearts. And I, I pray as we embark upon a new year that we would be men and women that know what it is to increasingly know in our souls that we are living for God, we are living for Christ, we are increasing 
in our love for thee, in our preoccupation with things of spiritual import. And we are um, decreasing in our preoccupation with things of this world, things which are not good for our souls. So I pray you would make appropriate application to each one of our hearts, knowing our lives, knowing our comings and our goings. I, I pray that you would take your pure, holy word, apply it to our own hearts as we would seek to live for your honor and for your glory. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.